0: Then I saw a great white throne and the one who was sitting on it. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And each person was judged by what he had done. Dan was always surrounded by scandal, controversy, and friends. A multimillionaire, he lost his sole money that was intended for monuments to his beloved fellow veterans at Gettysburg and elsewhere. He was, on the one hand, amazingly likable and energetic. He impressed and became friends with four United States presidents. On the other hand, there would have been no shortage of contemporaries to agree with George Templeton Strong when he wrote, one might as well try to spoil a rotten egg as to damage Dan's character, end quote. He had a gift for deceiving others. And his greatest notoriety came while while a second-term congressman. He shot and killed a man having an affair with his very young wife. His successful defense, managed by many several or several high-profile attorneys, was the first temporary insanity defense in American history. But the next day, he commented to friends, of course I intended to kill him. He deserved it. John was only 19, just shy of 20. And here he was in the jungles of Vietnam, seeing things he never thought he'd see, wondering if he ever would see home again. Then there was gunfire, men running, men falling. In front of him, a soldier lay wounded, and he had to get him. The last thing he remembered was trying to move his fallen comrade. Phil had worked all his life at this time. Now he had the boat that he always wanted and waterfront property in North Carolina. It was the time to retire and enjoy what he had prepared so many years for and invested so much time in. But the pain was unbearable. The cancer treatments made him so sick. He lost 70 pounds in just five months, nearly half his weight. And he wondered if he was going to make it.
1: Did he work all of his life just for this? John 5, verse 28. John 5, verse 28. The words of Jesus Christ. John 5, verse 28. Do not marvel at this,
0: for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. As with the boy at Nain, the daughter of Jairus and Lazarus, Jesus Christ will cause billions on this day to come up out of their graves and stand alive again in the flesh. These few life stories will be only a handful of billions, billions of lives, billions of experiences, billions of perspectives, attitudes, prejudices, hatreds, loves, and memories. All these billions will stand face to face with God, with each other, with us, and ultimately with themselves. Imagine the scene it will be. Babies, old people, people who had married more than once. Fathers who died, leaving children behind who lived to a ripe old age. Rich people, poor people, pilgrims, cowboys, pygmies, Assyrians, ancient Greeks, Huns, kings, queens, presidents, prime ministers. Sheiks, feudal lords, composers, poets, musicians, unconverted biblical characters throughout the ages. Americans, Australians, Indians, Pakistanis, Muslims, Catholics, Serbs, Croatians, Yankees, and Confederates. People who died in wars. People who died from illnesses, those who were murdered, those who committed suicide, those who died in accidents or concentration camps, illiterate, ignorant people, victims of crime, of violence, of broken families, disease, depression, or other mental or physical disorders. People who suffered the oppression of racial tensions discrimination, or even religious bigotry. People who ruined their lives through adultery, divorce, drug abuse, or who negatively affected others' lives through the abuse of different sorts. Children who learned war, violence, hatred, distrust, and disrespect. Suddenly, they will all be there, standing before members of the God family, an enormous variety of cultures, languages, backgrounds, and experiences.
1: Good, bad, and everywhere in between. Quite a group, don't you think?
0: American Civil War Union General Dan Sickles will have much to answer for when he stands before Christ. He will have to answer truthfully for his scandalous ways and his deceitfulness. Sickles will face the man he murdered and will have to apologize not only to him, but to those he boasted about his premeditated act. He'll have to reckon with his own pride and vanity and learn to tell the truth. He'll have to learn humility and get credit to others rather than himself. He'll have to learn to devote his energies to something worthwhile not for personal gain, but for the welfare of others. John Sturpy, a close friend of our family, whose life was cut off in its prime in the
1: jungles of Vietnam, will have his whole life ahead of him. Yeah, sorry. He'll be reunited with his parents, who grieved for him
0: till the day they died. He'll be able to see the man he tried to help. And rebuild and enjoy that friendship throughout his life. And he will be able to develop the giving nature that he displayed
1: that day when he risked and lost his life. My dad will
0: stand completely healed, able to see his wife again, meet his daughter in law for the first time, (laughs) his children. And his grandchildren, we never met. And he will be able to see his entire family and his wife's entire family who never got along with each other
1: and learn how to do that. It will be a different time.
0: It will be a wonderful time. Across the earth, people will have to realize what they had never known about God, about life, and about themselves. Atheists will have to learn to accept a God they never believed in. Won't that be a surprise? Hey, by the way, I'm God, the one you think or thought didn't exist. Advocates of civil liberties that God condemns will have to learn what true liberty is and why not all liberty is true freedom. Members of hate groups will have to unravel deep layers of prejudice and anger. People who sought escape and substance abuse will have to learn to face and deal with life. Children who have known nothing but violence that took the lives of parents, aunts, uncles, cousins, and friends will have to rid their minds of the hatred, distrust, and disrespect that grew within them as a result. Who will be the ones who will have to help these people process all their experiences, their memories, their feelings, their problems, their prejudices, and their attitudes?
1: You will. I will. We will be there on the front lines. You and I will deal with
0: all that they will have to deal with when that time comes face to face. What qualities will we need to help these people attain their potential? And what do we need to be doing now to develop those qualities? Let's answer these two questions today. The first again, what qualities will we need to help these people attain their potential? Today we'll just talk about four. Number one,
1: patience. Patience. Patience is is defined as the
0: bearing of provocation, annoyance, misfortune, or pain without complaint, loss of temper, or anger. It's why in the Bible it's called long-suffering, dealing with the difficulty, discomfort, inconvenience, loss, and uncertainty of life. It's quiet, steady perseverance, and even tempered care. In working with people, patience is the ability to deal with the type and degree of people's problems with a selfless concern for them, a concern that's consistent, even if the problems are serious or persist for long periods of time. Jesus Christ set us an example the apostle Peter reminds us that when they hurled their insults at him, he did not respond respond in kind. And when he suffered, he did not make threats. He was even tempered, and he was able to bear everything he faced, as difficult as it was. First Thessalonians five fourteen. First Thessalonians five and verse fourteen. Paul gave instruction to the church here to help them in dealing with each other properly.
1: First Thessalonians 5 and verse 14. Paul writes, Now we exhort you, brethren,
0: warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, and be patient with all. This is what we will have to do when this day becomes reality. People will struggle then with the same challenges that we struggle with now. And they will be struggling, some of them for a long time. And we will have to be patient with them. Colossians 3 and
1: verse 12. Colossians 3 and in verse 12. This is instruction from Paul to
0: the congregation here about how to begin to build the right bonds with each other, how to overcome. Colossians 3, verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. That's compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, again, a type of gentleness, long-suffering bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. The people that we will work with will have an infinite variety of problems, as many problems as there are people that will rise from the dead, if not more. And their problems will be big and small, some easier to deal with, some extremely difficult. To deal with persistent problems, some will have problems that will be time-consuming and take a very long time to overcome. For some, progress will seem indiscernible at times, like almost nothing is happening, and they may get discouraged and need encouragement from you and me. Second Timothy two in verse twenty-four. Second Timothy two in verse twenty-four. Now, this was instruction from the Apostle Paul to the evangelist Timothy about dealing with those who were coming or being exposed to the truth of God. But the principle here, the principle of the instruction that he's giving to Timothy is, again, about the way we need to deal with people. Second Timothy 2 and in verse 24. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all able to teach, patient. Results will not be immediate in that time. Some things will have to be explained over and over and over again. And not everybody will agree right away as we've talked about this feast. Regardless, our ultimate goal will be to win hearts and minds, and that will take a good deal of time. The second quality that we will need is wisdom. Wisdom. One who is wise can correctly assess situations and make proper decisions based on what is right. Simply put, wisdom means knowing the right thing to do at the right time in the right way. The right thing to do at the right time and in the right way. All three are necessary. Solomon's handling of the two women who both claimed the infant child is an excellent example of exercising wisdom in dealing with a difficult situation. So are the numerous exchanges between Christ and the Jews. We will deal with the same kinds of minds steeped in human nature. People will come up as they went down.
1: Some will be submissive and teachable and some will not. Several
0: years ago, I took our family to uh, the Catholic Cemetery in Rochester, New York, where I grew up, to show them where all of my relatives are buried. What's humorous about it is, if you knew my family, my father's over here, his parents are over here, and my mother's side of the family's over here, and literally they're spitting distance away from each other. And boy, there was, there was not, there were naughty problems. You know, my mother didn't like my dad's mother at all. My dad's mother was a rough character. She literally would push my grandfather down the porch steps several times. Little lady, smaller than me. And of course, my grandfather, my Italian grandfather, lived with us from the time I was five until the time I left for college at 18. And I woke up, I didn't need an alarm clock, I woke up to arguing every single day. That was my alarm clock. My mother arguing with my grandfather all the time. It'll be an interesting time when they all stand up. And they're all with each other. Right. Somebody said to me, I said the other day, I said, I'm going to ask for an assignment in Australia or something. And somebody said, but but you'd be the most qualified to deal with them." I said, I know that. That's why I'm going to ask for Australia. (laughs) It's going to be tough. Because they'll come up, they'll look at each other and they may just start arguing right from there.
1: You know, that's the reality of what it will be like. When this day becomes reality, godly wisdom will be needed
0: to walk people through their problems, to deal with difficult situations, to transform hostile minds into yielded, spirit-led minds. Even, Even with a keen ability to discern thoughts or attitudes, we will still have to decide how to best respond to people's thoughts and attitudes. We'll have to decide when to do something and when not to do something. Both are important. We will have to decide when to address a problem or need or when to give a person space. Because there are times when that is necessary. We'll have to decide what to deal with immediately, what needs to be handled right away, and what we will deal with later.
1: It's what every pastor has to do in order to do things God's way. Isaiah 11, verse 1. Isaiah 11, and verse 1. This describes how Jesus Christ will deal with people.
0: The way he will do it. And the wisdom that he will display. Isaiah 11, and verse 1. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch will grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. Now, understanding is not just about understanding truth. It's included in that. But understanding includes understanding people, understanding human nature, understanding what people are all about. The spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes. In other words, how things appear. How often do things appear one way but are really another? Nor decide by the hearing of his ears. You know, people will run up saying, well, blah, 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 blah. How many times have you had somebody say something about you that wasn't true? Somebody else
1: who just took it as fact, but it wasn't right. See, he won't, he won't allow that, but with righteousness, he shall judge the poor.
0: This is discernment of the heart and decide with equity, with fairness for the meek of the earth. Christ will not judge by mere external appearances alone. He will consider the heart and he will not be swayed by persuasive arguments. He will judge by the true merits of each case with all the facts, every single fact. In wisdom, he will decide what to do, when to do it, and how to do it to achieve the primary goal. And that will be to build godly character in each individual he deals with. And as his assistants, you and I will need to do the same. That is why we will need wisdom. The third quality
1: we will need is compassion. Compassion. By definition, compassion is a feeling of deep, deep sympathy and sorrow.
0: For someone struck by misfortune, accompanied by a desire to alleviate the suffering. So it's about deep sympathy. It's about sorrow for those who need that along with a desire to alleviate that suffering. There's something Mr. Weston wrote a few issues ago, I believe. It was the Living Church News, if I remember correctly. He talked about, you know, we have all these people around us today who are so utterly confused, transgenders, all the rest. And he made an interesting statement that I've really tried to apply in my prayer because he said, if you could look at those people as if they had cancer, and not so so much focus on the exact problem, because obviously something's wrong here. But if you could you could think of them as if they have cancer, and you know assess that, their situation from that angle, it can help you to do so without you know getting angry and just wanting to smudge them out or thinking you're nuts and I don't want to deal with you. So again, we have to have that kind of compassion as well. It's easy to show sympathy and sorrow for someone who's been hurt by somebody
1: else. But not by somebody, it seems, who is quite confused and is strange. Several
0: years ago when we were in Albuquerque, we for a while had to meet at this one hotel that we thought was going to be a good idea, but it was not. We met met in meeting rooms with no windows and you just had one set of doors that went out to this sort of atrium. And after services one day, I went out those double doors to be confronted by a drag queen, a young man with um, uh, uh, contacts that were silver, dressed strangely and half clothed, and he gives me this big smile. Well, hi, <laughs> okay. <clears throat> And the rest of his friends were all meeting in a big, giant room adjacent to our meeting room, drinking and everything else, and they all looked similar to him. So, you see, the first reaction you have is like, get away from me. I want nothing to do with you. Either. You're messed up. But yet we, are, we will need to have compassion for these people. We will need to recognize there was something there that caused them to become this way a type of misfortune, really. We need to see them correctly and be able to have a genuine desire to alleviate their problems and to help them through it, which will be very difficult, won't it? You see, those who rise in that day will be products or victims of the age in which we live, including these kinds of people. Some people's problems will easily inspire compassion while others will not. Regardless, both will require compassion. What will it be like to deal with victims of abuse? Those whose innocent lives were shattered, some at a very young age. What will it take to help them unravel complex attitudes, and thoughts, hatreds, resentments, and fears? Things that were foisted off in them or done to them before they could even recognize what was happening, and not really realizing the imprint on their minds and on their hearts and in their attitudes, what will it take to unravel that? Because, again, these are problems of the mind. And like we talked about earlier in the feast, that you cannot snap your fingers as a God being and just fix all of that. It's one thing to heal, Right? It's another thing to deal with a mind
1: that has become so twisted and and corrupted that it has to be unraveled over time.
0: The Gospels record how Jesus was moved to compassion for the people that came to him because, as he said, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he compassionately met their needs and taught them. Isaiah 42 in verse 1.
1: Isaiah 42 in verse 1.
0: There's a lot about this that he did when he came the first time, but he will do this again when he returns. Notice how it's phrased here in the beautiful poetry of Isaiah, the descriptive poetry. Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Verse 3, notice this, beautifully put, beautifully expressed. A bruised reed he will not break. You ever see a reed, if it's bruised, it's kind of bent a little bit? But he won't go and go snap with it. And smoking flax he will not quench. There's some essence of light and fire in that thing. He won't snuff it out. Think about somebody who might begin to get past their problems, and they will be like smoking flax.
1: And you're going to have to keep fanning that flame to help them grow, help them develop, help them keep on going.
0: He will bring forth justice for truth. Like Christ did in the first century, he will deal tenderly and sensitively with the weak and disadvantaged to encourage them, to strengthen them.
1: The fourth quality that we will need, no surprise, Is love. Love.
0: If you're taking notes, you might want to add four words. Genuine, outgoing, selfless concern. Genuine, outgoing, selfless concern. Because the word love is such a cliche, it's so easy to think of love as just feeling when it's not. It's far more than that. And as we know and as we heard, I think, yesterday, it is about keeping the commandments of God, the law of God, and living according to that law. What will it be like to deal with despots, hardened criminals, or terrorists? What if you're assigned the terrorists that flew the planes into the World Trade Center towers or the Pentagon,
1: and they're handed to you? What if you get Pol Pot? What if you get
0: Timothy McVeigh, the man who blew up the federal building several years ago, killing even children as well? What will you do if you're handed the Russian soldiers currently in Ukraine, raping women,
1: cruelly torturing people? How will you deal with them if they're handed off to you? How will we appropriately
0: handle those who may be extremely difficult to handle or those who may not want to be handled? Because we'll probably have those too for a time. We'll need the enduring, consistent quality of our Father in heaven. Matthew 5, verse 43. Matthew 5 and verse 43.
1: This is one of the toughest sections in the Bible to apply, to live by. Because
0: if you're like me, it's very easy to be to fit the carnal description that's mentioned here. You know, love those who love you and hate those who you perceive don't. You know, especially in our world. COVID didn't help us in many ways. You see it everywhere you go. You can give a friendly to hol- hello to somebody and they, they will deliberately not recognize you exist. And what's that first little inkling that you feel when they do that? It's like, what's wrong with you, man? (laughs) You know, what's your problem? I'm trying to be friendly here. (laughs) Can't you tell I love you? (laughs) Matthew 5, verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. As I point out many times, if you have a New King James Version, the you shall love your neighbor is in italics, meaning that's in the law. But hate your enemy, if you notice, is not in
1: italics because you won't find it in the Bible. But I say to you, love your enemies.
0: And what is love, as defined in Romans thirteen, do no harm. That's the very thing you'd want to do to your enemy. Bless those who curse you. So when they spit out stuff that's bad about you, actually say something good about them. Whatever you can find or think of. Do good to those who hate you, because usually people who hate you don't do good to you. But do good to them anyways. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute
1: you. Just the opposite of our natural tendencies. <clears throat> Why? That you may
0: be sons of your father in heaven. In other words, that you may be like he is. Cause this is what Christ did. He loved his enemies. You and me,
1: as Paul says in Romans, were his enemies. And he gave his life for us despite ourselves. He blessed those who cursed him. He did good to those who hated him.
0: And he prayed for those that spitefully used him and persecuted him.
1: Including the ones that crucified him. You need the spirit of God to do that. Do this that you may be the
0: sons of your father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You see, because all he knows to do is love. All he knows to do is do no harm. That's ultimately his intention. When he punishes, he punishes. But I think like Mr. Grovac said the other day, or no, it was Mr. Frank, I think, as a responsible parent. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? It's easy to love people that love you, that treat you right. And if you greet your brethren only, what more do you do than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? So unless we do these things, we're no different than anybody else. Therefore, you shall be perfect. And that word perfect means not lacking in any moral quality. You shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's his nature. Learning to deal with difficult people in this age is preparing us to success, successfully deal with difficult people we will encounter in the next. We're in training. And when we deal with difficult people, whether in the church or out of the church or outside the church, we're prepared, being prepared for what, when this day becomes reality. Those of us who have struggled with depression, say, and overcome it will help the depressed. Those of us who suffered abuse and overcome its effects will help those who were abused. Orphans will help orphans. The disabled will help those who are disabled. Now, yes, they'll be healed. My mother had multiple sclerosis from the time I was 14 to the time that she died in 2008. A lot of deep resentments in her because people would stare at her. In those days, being disabled meant everybody stared at you. you know, they Whisper, 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 they point. There's a lot of anger in her about that. She so said, even though we, though we might heal the disabled and they'll be able to leap for joy, they'll still have
1: all that stuff in them about the way they were treated. The sick will help those who were sick. Those who struggle
0: with some of the most, uh, some of the worst spiritual problems and overcome them will help those who will have the most difficult spiritual struggles because they will know what it's like to overcome those things. What you and I wrestle with and overcome today will qualify us to help
1: those in tomorrow's world. What are your struggles? What are you fighting with? What is still overcoming you that
0: you are trying to overcome? You're being prepared and you're preparing as you fight and as you wrestle with those things. It will make you eminently qualified to help people with the same problems. So with that in mind, what do we need to be doing now to develop those qualities? Let's talk about four things we need to be doing now. Number one. Accept responsibility. Accept responsibility. For people to fulfill their potential during the great white throne judgment period, they will need to accept responsibility for what they became in this age, regardless of the experiences that brought them to that point. This will be the most important first step for them to make real changes and heal relationships. I don't like using the example because I know some of us have struggled with alcoholism in the past. But anyone who is aware of these types of problems recognizes alcoholics can tell you, yes, what I'm doing is bad. Yes, it's hurting me. Yes, it's hurting my wife and my kids, my extended family. It's costing me money that I don't have. They can sound repentant but that doesn't mean they are. It's not until they hit bottom. It's not until they accept responsibility for who they are that they even begin to turn around. But you don't have to have had an alcoholic past to struggle with accepting responsibility for who
1: you are. Right? You could have lived a relatively decent life, maybe. But unless you recognize,
0: regardless of how you got this way, what you are that is problematic, and that regardless of your background, or mom and dad, or brother or sister, or other church members, you got a problem. <laughs> and you have to deal with that. You have to accept that you are who you are that's wrong. You see, the type of change that, that, that many will need to undergo will not happen automatically or magically. Deep-seated character traits, attitudes, again, prejudices, hatreds, resentments, bitterness, and abusive abusive memories will not be dislodged or transformed easily. Nor will they be eased by vengeance or merely by justice being done. You know, I read, read a story several years ago, you might have heard of it, about the Uh, daughter of a gentleman they were walking uh, together out um, in San Francisco by the bay, father and daughter would have been very much like me and my daughter. And an illegal uh, immigrant claimed that he found a gun under this park bench. And he says, accidentally fired it and shot the girl.
1: She lay, you know, in her father's arms saying, daddy, please help me. And I read that and it's like, oh, (laughs) you know, the anger wells up thinking what it would be like if that was me and my daughter. But, you know, when these kinds of things happen, there's always an excuse, isn't there? But excuses don't change people. It's being able to accept responsibility for what you've done, what you
0: are, that changes people. That's the beginning of change. Personal change will need to begin and end within every individual, regardless of what happened around them or to them. And we're going to have to help people get that.
1: Romans 14, verse 11. Romans 14, verse 11. Paul was dealing with, you know, personal preferences, uh, personal
0: opinions, personal practices here in this section of Romans 14 into Romans 15. You had those uh, we can only suspect uh, because there were some Jews in the congregation at Rome. Jews had this tradition of fasting on Fridays and Tuesdays. I'm sorry, I always say Tuesday, Friday and Monday. Why? Because they believe that Moses went up to Mount Sinai on a Friday and he came back on a Monday. Not the following Monday, as we know, but a, many days later. And so they have this habit of fasting only on those days. And Paul was having to address this because no doubt the Jews were probably trying to tell the Gentiles, oh, you, you better fast on Fridays and Mondays, you know, because those are the, the, the holy days to fast. Paul was saying, you know, it doesn't really matter when. It matters that you do. And then, of course, you had those that, that sacrificed meat to idols who came into the church. And they had been so deeply steeped in it that when they came in, they said, you know what? For fear that I might bite a piece of meat that was offered up on the hill here to a foreign god, I'd rather just do without it until Christ returns or I die, whichever comes first. But no doubt there are people, probably, like we can do today. You've got the Holy Spirit. Come on, man. Drink or eat, whatever. And Paul was saying, watch out here, because you're not that person's judge. It's not for you to dictate what they do or don't do. So in Romans 14, verse 11, Paul said, For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. In other words, every knee will bow to Christ, not to you. Every tongue will confess to God, not you or me. We are not the arbiters of each other's lives. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. And So every individual will have to give account for his or her own thoughts, words, and actions to God directly. No one will be able to point a finger at anyone else. Placing blame on others will not change who these people became. Only by accepting responsibility for who they became will they begin to move forward. In preparation for that day, you and I have to do the same thing now in our own lives. We live in a culture of blame and victimhood. It's not my fault. This person did this or... You know, I'm facing this in society where my congregation is awful. So that justifies things. Like I said the other night at the Bible study, no, it doesn't.
1: What if you were in Corinth? That wouldn't have been a fun congregation to be a part of. But nobody had an excuse for leaving the church as a result.
0: See, we can't use these attitudes as an excuse for the kind of people we
1: are and the problems we have. Because when we want others to accept responsibility, it's missing in us.
0: As we struggle today within ourselves, as we strive to grow, have we accepted full responsibility for what we are and what we do? I hear a lot of people talking about, oh, yeah, this is wrong with me and that's wrong with me, and you know, I really shouldn't do this and I really shouldn't do that. And then I watch them go off and do this and that. And it just leaves me saying, they don't get it yet. Well, they give me a great description of their problems, but they don't change. We have to learn to accept responsibility for who, for who we are, or we're just going to continue. To become more eloquent in describing our problems, but not change. We have to do that if we're going to help people in the next stage, do it. The second thing we need to do is share our struggles with God. Share our struggles with God. And I emphasize struggles.
1: Not just share our nice thoughts. (laughs) Though that's good too. After accepting
0: responsibility for the condition of our own hearts, minds, and lives, people will then have to change their attitudes and character, their approach to life, and to other people, their thoughts, their words, their actions. They will have to learn to share their struggles openly and honestly with God, pour it out to the only one capable of changing what they are into what they need to be. And God will hear and respond. Look at Isaiah 65 and verse 24. Isaiah 65 and verse
1: 24. beautiful verse. It's going to be
0: wonderful when this this happens. The words of God about his people and the people in that day. Isaiah 65 and verse 24. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. God will respond to those who pour out their hearts openly and honestly to him and ask for his help. Do you do that with the problems that you struggle with? I've mentioned before in sermons that I remember times where All I could do was get on my knees and with tears in my eyes, just say, help. I didn't know what else to say at those times. You know, I trusted in the scripture in Romans where it says Christ is able to read the heart and utter what needs to be uttered to God the Father so that we can receive the help we need. You know, some of our problems are so naughty and so deep and so twisted. Only God can sort them out. And sometimes we don't understand ourselves. I should say, actually, often we don't understand ourselves. We might have an inkling, but being able to sort of psychoanalyze ourselves is impossible for us. Only God reads right through us. Only God can eloquently describe exactly what's wrong with us. We can't, as I remember someone saying years ago in Heaven Forgotten, We can't find our way out of a wet paper bag spiritually with the most naughty problems we have. We don't know where to go. We don't know where to turn. We don't know what direction to turn. We need to share our struggles with God and ask for his help. You know, the book of Hebrews reminds us the example of Christ, where it says there, he offered up prayers and petitions, crying aloud and shedding tears. To the one who had the power to deliver him from death, and he was heard because of his godliness. Jesus set us the example of openly and honestly sharing his struggles with God, who heard him and responded to his needs. In preparation to help those people, we need to develop the kind of relationship with God where we can share all of our struggles honestly and openly with him bringing our weak and troubled hearts and minds to him to unravel and straighten out. If we do, we'll be able to help others to share their struggles with God so that he will be able to straighten out their lives. We will be able to say, look, if you don't know what to say, say whatever you can. God knows. Trust me, God knows. Because I did the same thing. And with things I didn't even understand about myself, He revealed it,
1: and he changed me, changed who I was, and I became a different person. See, we're facing
0: a time, perhaps in the next several weeks to months, maybe a couple of years, where things are going to get worse.
1: And we will need to be able to stand like our feet are are embedded in concrete, spiritually.
0: And if there are things that we're struggling with that we're not getting on top of, they could be our undoing. We can't be casual about where we stand in human history right
1: now. We can't be casual. And so we've got to recognize that anything that's wrong with us is, is a danger zone.
0: And so we have to identify those things and we have to take them to God and and beg him to change these things and to rid us of those weak spots because Satan, the devil, and his demons know exactly what they are.
1: And they will attempt to penetrate v- right there where the weak spot is. We can't be casual about them. And so we've got to go to God and get past these things. If we're going to be prepared to help people in the next stage get past their worst Spiritual struggles.
0: The third thing we need to do is accept the trials that refine us.
1: Accept the trials that refine us. To refine the character of the billions that God will work with at that time, He will allow
0: difficulties in their lives. He will to bring weaknesses to the surface, to eradicate character flaws, and to build character traits in preparation for eternal life. Like was said today by Mr. Medja, like has been said all this feast, people then will have to go through what you and I go through today. Yeah, they won't in that that time have Satan working against them, but they'll still have who they are. They will be the product of Satan's world. They'll bring it back to life with them. And how does God refine us today? Pressures, challenges, difficulties, struggles, things going wrong. So why wouldn't he allow that in their lives when necessary to do the same thing he's
1: trying to accomplish in you and me now? James 1 verse 2. James 1 verse 2. It's hard not to go here. Believe me, I tried to think of other
0: scriptures or go to other scriptures that would get at this point. But, you know, it's very hard to get away from James 1. Notice James 1 verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. You can only do that if you appreciate what God is doing through the trial.
1: I've used the analogy before because I've lifted weights now for 50 years. It's harder than it used to
0: be. But, you know, if you've had a personal trainer at sorts, I did I did compete and had, you know, was trained at that time to lift uh, competitively. You know, I remember the time when I was trying to break the barrier of 200 pounds in the, in the squat, back squat. And, you know, I'm telling the guys – Get put 195 on the bar. So I do 200. I'm going to, I'm going to collapse. So they were wise. They distracted me enough to slap, you know, two more five pounders on there. It was 205. So I would pull the thing off and I grunt and I go down and I come up, put it back because I was confident. 195. I can do that. They said, you know what you just did? You just did 205. You know? See, as soon as you, you, you think you've got it, God puts more weight on the bar. But, you know, breaking that barrier helped me to realize how mentally I was working against myself. The only way to build character is to have a force against it. And you can only appreciate what God is allowing, not being all joyful about the problem, but you can only appreciate it when you know what God is doing and you don't forget what God is doing. Verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. God has got to know what you're made of. After 43 years in the church, there are things now that I do not struggle with, that I struggled with even 10 years ago. They don't affect me the same way. Because things happened that forced me to deal with it. But I, I have peace when I face those things now that I didn't have before, things that used to just eat me up. That's where the joy comes from. You've got to remember the things that God has helped you overcome already and realize what it will be like when this trial passes and you've grown in that character to deal with it. Next time, you won't, you won't struggle with it. Verse 4, but let patience have its perfect work. Oh, boy, time, time. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's the goal. That whatever that pressure, that trial, that difficulty, the discomfort it creates, the inconvenience it creates, the loss you suffer, the uncertainty that it created. The product is meant to be that you and I are more like God. Isn't that what we want here? Isn't that what we're striving for?
1: God knows there's only one way to make it happen, and we have to accept that. That's why in verse 19,
0: verse 19 of James 1, he says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. When you face difficulty, discomfort, inconvenience, loss, and uncertainty, be ready to go, God, what's going on? What do I need to focus on? Be ready to be very careful not to start complaining. And don't get angry about it. Because in verse 20, the wrath or the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That's what we talked
1: about the other night. You have to accept the trial. Accept the difficulty if you're going to grow. God is doing this, though, not only for our benefit
0: but for the benefit of others who will follow our footsteps in the age to come. We mustn't lose sight of the overall goal. God is maturing us spiritually to become better people. He's forging holy, righteous character in us, not just for our sake, but to fulfill his purpose in the next age, using us to help others do the same. The fourth thing, final thing that we need to do, is trust God implicitly
1: to finish his work. Trust God implicitly to finish his work. In that day, the scoundrel and the terrorist, the fearful and depressed, the
0: angry and confused will have to come to trust implicitly that God can indeed heal them of their deepest problems and make them spiritually whole. They'll need to believe it can actually happen for them. God will do for them what he will do for Jerusalem and the descendants of Israel in the millennium. Look at
1: Jeremiah 33, verse 6. Jeremiah 33 and verse 6. Notice what God says here. Jeremiah 33 and verse 6.
0: Behold, I will bring it health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. This is not just about physical healing, as if all these people will be hobbling around or ill. Because he connects it with peace and truth. Be healing of minds. Healing of attitudes. And I will cause the captives of Judah and the captives of Israel to return and will rebuild those places as at the first. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned and by which they have transgressed against me. The word health in verse 6 means restoring to soundness or wholeness. Soundness or wholeness. So God will restore emotional and physical well-being to those who are in spiritual slavery and distress. And for those who are willing, he will heal the most spiritually troubled soul. God has made this promise to you and me today that he can do this. First Thessalonians 5 and verse 23. First
1: Thessalonians 5 and verse 23. You and I have to believe these words if we're
0: to, if we're going to avoid giving up, if we're going to be able to get past the thought that God can help others, but not me, that I'm too messed up. I'm too perverted or corrupted or whatever. Because again, as we talked about at the beginning, what will these other people be like that come up? You think God's going to bring up billions of people? who have been really twisted around and just turn around and go, well, you're hopeless, throw them in the lake of fire? I mean, after allowing the things that he's allowed for 6,000 years, if he can't heal them, if he can't change them, it's hard to believe that he knows what he's doing. But he does know what he's doing, and he knows what he's capable of, but you and I have to cooperate. First Thessalonians 5 and verse 23. Paul writes, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. The New International Revised version puts it well. May he make you holy through and through. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the kicker, verse 24. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. You think you're too messed up to be fixed? Let me ask you this. If you were too messed up to be fixed, why did God call you in the first place? So you see, when we start having these feelings of, oh, I don't think I can make it, or I think I'm too messed up to change,
1: God is not dumb. He called you because he believed he can change you. And we
0: got to be able to wrap our minds around that and ask God to help us to wrap our minds around that. Because we will have to tell people in that day who have been even far more messed up than you and I have been that God can change them. And you'll be able to tell them your life story and how difficult it was,
1: how challenging it was and yet how you stand before them, a member of the divine family of God. So
0: as we look to that time, we have to allow God to heal our deepest spiritual illnesses and make us spiritually whole. Understanding what will happen when this day is fulfilled over a thousand years from now, and the part we will play in its fulfillment, it puts our experiences, our trials, and the need to grow and change in their proper context why we're here, why we're doing what we're doing, why we're going to go back home and have to keep on doing it for another year. Let's accept responsibility. Let's share our struggles with God. Let's accept our trials. And let's trust God implicitly to finish his work in our lives. If we do these things, God will develop within us the patience, wisdom, compassion, and love that it will take to help billions find their way into the family of God. So let's put ourselves in the hands of God to prepare us for what will become the greatest hello and the greatest spiritual harvest of all time.